Welcome to this edition of the NeuroFarm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Dr. Pharmacy. I'm joined by Dr. Chris Tony, Dr. Pharmacy. There are 4 million podcasts in the United States, but we're sure glad you cho- chose to listen to this one. Know there's a lot of options out there, but we hope this is entertaining for you, provide some information about the field of psychedelic science. And let's go ahead and get this thing started. I apologize in advance if there's any sound of fireworks in the background. It is July 2nd as we record this. and. Fourth of July is in two days. Our neighbors are already excited about the coming holiday festivities. Yeah. So, Colby, I heard that you went to the MAPS conference last week. Yes, I did attend the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychiatric or Psychedelic Sciences, or MAPS, for those who aren't familiar with the acronym, in Denver, Colorado. MAPS was founded by Rick Doblin, for those who don't know, um, in 1986 as a 5013C company with the mission to provide medical, legal, and cultural information for those to benefit from psychedelics. MAPS PBC is the branch of MAPS designed to actually commercialize prescription psychedelics. So it's kind of a separate branch from the main MAPS group. But MAPS started small, but the momentum of the organization is building is evidenced by the fact that right now MDMA, as we talked about, is very close to obtaining FDA approval. And to the conference itself this year had 12,000 attendees. Um, there were celebrities like Aaron Rodgers, football quarterback, uh, politicians like Rick Perry of Texas, and a lot of other people of uh, well-known reputation. It was the largest psychedelic conference in history. I would say it was definitely a bit overwhelming, which seemed to be a common theme among anyone who attended. But overall, it was an amazing experience. It left me really inspired for us to continue on this journey of the podcast. I know there's a lot of people out there who really want to know about the dosing, metabolism, drug interactions, and administration of these drugs. And there's definitely a knowledge gap and a lot of unknowns and unanswered questions. I think as pharmacists, we can really help peel through the darkness and look at the data and help to answer those questions. I learned a lot of new research I want to share, including research on some substances I'd never heard of or didn't know much about, like LSA or BOL, which is 2-bromo-LSD, a non-psychedelic form of LSD that's gathering some interest in treating headaches. So that's going to be future topics to discuss. And I also want to get some interesting guests on here in the psychedelic and functional medicine space to talk about what they're doing and have a little back and forth with us on the show. So... I think it's really excited. If you want to know more about the conference, I do have a blog post about it on the NeuroFarm Substack page. I know a lot of people are probably listening to this on Substack, but we also now are on Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify, hello. It's great to have you here. And yeah, we've been on the air long enough. I think it's time for some follow-ups on topics previously discussed. Uh, I was reviewing episode one on MDMA and realized we didn't go into detail on neurotoxicity. So I want to circle back to that as well as a couple other topics on MDMA now that we've um, broken through the introduction section. 
So anyways, I mentioned in my previous podcast that neurotoxicity is possible with MDMA. The primary evidence to support MDMA or neurotoxicity comes from the article, Severe Dopaminergic Neurotoxicity in Primates After a Common Recreational Dose Regimen of MDMA. Uh, it was published in 2002 and explained most of the basis of the argument for MDMA being neurotoxic. The study results were basically explained in the title that there was this toxicity observed in monkeys that were given a normal recreational dose of MDMA. And that generated some negative publicity around the drug. But a year later in 2003, the MDMA neurotoxicity study was actually retracted. It was found out that the monkeys were given methamphetamine, not MDMA. So methamphetamine is structurally similar to MDMA, but there are some important differences. It is not the same as MDMA. And methamphetamine we know can cause neurotoxicity. Uh, the study authors admitted that they had some massive procedural screw-ups in their methodology. There's a conspiracy theory, of course, maybe among the psychedelic community that they were paid to provide negative data on MDMA to show it was dangerous. But that's kind of the primary um, literature piece that shows the MDMA is neurotoxic. Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscience professor at Stanford University, who runs the Huberman Labs podcast, said in his professional opinion, it's still possible for MDMA to be neurotoxic, uh, mainly because the way it increases body temperature, which is a known side effect of MDMA. Uh, we know high, high body temperature in people can cause nerve damage on its own, like bacterial meningitis. People spike high fevers can cause one to go deaf. Uh, that actually happened to my grandfather, how he lost his hearing in the Navy from meningitis, high temperature damaged permanently his cochlear nerve. So that is a concern with MDMA, especially if someone is at a rave scene on ecstasy and mixing it with other drugs, they're dancing, they're in a hot environment. It can cause that super high body temperature and neurological damage that way. But it's not really clear that MDMA, a pure MDMA on its own, when used in a clinical setting, would cause neurotoxicity. It might actually be overstated in literature. Um, MDMA withdrawal, however, is a potential problem in the 24 to 48 hours after MDMA ingestion. It seems that withdrawal actually occurs because of a depletion of serotonin, not because of a depletion of serotonin and dopamine, but because of an increase of the hormone prolactin. This is a hormone that stimulates breast milk production in females, also peaks after sex, um, seems to be associated with the post-ejaculation refractory period in men where you, know, you can't really get up again after you've had sex because prolactin levels rise. So this prolactin rise also seems to cause the crash after using MDMA. Both vitamin B6 and a drug substance called P5P, which is the active form of vitamin B6, are known to inhibit levels of prolactin, and they've been proposed to help with the MDMA crash. I think this is going to be a separate topic to kind of go into the research on this in a later podcast or article, but there is definitely a few studies out there that research um, the use of those drugs to block prolactin, help prevent the post-crashed MDMA. The other drug proposed to use for MDMA withdrawal is cabergoline. This drug indirectly increases prolactin by acting as a dopamine agonist. There's a little less research on cabergoline, but in theory, it could be effective based on its mechanism. Um, it is used for 
women that have hyperprolactinemia or for men. L-tryptophan, magnesium, and other agents have also been proposed for the post-MDMA crash, but the use of those agents doesn't seem to be based on any sort of strong scientific or clinical evidence from a mechanism of action perspective. It's unlikely they would be effective. We also didn't mention Alexander Shulgin in our podcast on MDMA, which was um, a bit of an oversight on our part. So if you don't know who Alexander Shulgin was, he was a World War II Navy veteran and a well-known biochemist who created Zectran, which was the first biodegradable pesticide. He then went on to become an expert in the psychedelic community and had his own Schedule One analytical lab where he was able to synthesize and test psychoactive drugs, sometimes on himself. <laughs> he was actually responsible for introducing MDMA to the psychiatry community in 1976. The drug, as I mentioned, the podcast was designed by Merck in 1913, but it really wasn't used for much of anything. It was pretty much discarded. But Shogun learned about MDMA and developed a new and easier way to synthesize it. Then he provided it to his friend, a psychologist Leo Zeff in Berkeley, who began to use MDMA and talk therapy for trauma with promising results. So Shogun really did help to reintroduce MDMA to, or really introduce it in the first place because it wasn't particularly used before he resynthesized it. He's really important for getting MDMA back out there. So it was an oversight not to mention him. He also has tested hundreds of substances on himself. He developed his own rating scale for psychedelic experiences called the Shogun rating scale um, to explain effects of psychoactive drugs. And he wrote an influential book called Phenylethylamine Chemical Derivatives I Know and Love, or PICAL for short. He eventually had his lab raided and shut down by the DEA, but his impact in the field of psychedelic medicine cannot be understated. Um, probably won't be the last time I'll mention Shulgin. I also want to follow up on the LSD microdosing study. I don't want to rehash the whole microdosing study, so listen to episode three if you want a refresher. But I learned there was a pharmacogenomic analysis of the CYP2D6 enzyme performed on participants in the study to assess if there were reasons for variations in drug effect. I don't want to rehash the whole LSD microdosing study, so listen to episode three for a refresher, the last episode we had. I learned there was a pharmacogenomic analysis of the CYP2D6 enzyme performed on participants in the study to assess if there were reasons for variations in drug effect. Uh, previous in vitro or cellular studies on LSD metabolism showed that poor CYP2D6 metabolizers had 75% greater exposure to LSD compared to those with normal CYP2D6 function. So I know it has an effect. If you recall the microdosing study, four patients had to withdraw from the study. Um, those patients, again, is microdosing 10 microgram every three days of LSD, so not a high dose. But those four patients all had to withdraw due to increased anxiety. It turned out that two of the patients in the study that had to withdraw were poor metabolizers of LSD. So their response could have been predicted with a pharmacogenomic test prior to starting the study. Um, not all variations in effect, of course, are explained by pharmacogenomics. You know, that doesn't explain 100% the reason why someone has a different experience from another person while on psychedelics. But it could be a good idea to screen patients for CYP2D6 genotypes uh, prior to exposure to LSD in a clinical setting, or really for other antidepressants, because a lot of antidepressants are metabolized by CYP2D6. It's a very important enzyme. Yeah. So Colby, <clears throat> tell us about 
uh, how psychedelics work in the brain? Good question, Chris. So we never really actually explain how these drugs work on the brain at the neuroscience level. Um, we just kind of just jumped in and talking about MDMA and LSD, which is great. But I realized we didn't talk a lot about what has actually happened in the brain. We focused a lot on the pharmacology. So we can thank Dr. Robin Carhart Harris, uh, another well-known researcher of psychedelics for helping to explain the effects of psilocybin on the brain. We think LSD and other psychedelics work similar to this, uh, but the research was done psilocybin. In 2009, a colleague of Dr. Carhart Harris received a single intravenous dose of psilocybin and went into a functional MRI, which showed reduced brain activity rather than increased brain activity, as was expected with psilocybin. And particularly, the reduced brain activity was in an area known as the default mode network, so the default mode network is not universally accepted, but appears to link the cerebral cortex to the older structures of the brain evolved in memory and emotion. Aldous Huxley described the structure of the brain in the book Doors of Perception as a kind of reducing valve for the senses. Um, you know, he wasn't a neuroscientist, so in 1950s too, we didn't know as much as we did today, but his description of like this reducing valve is actually kind of correct. The default mode network is where the sense of ego or self is housed. And it's a structure developed later in life, so young children don't have it yet. Uh, that's kind of why it seems young kids have been described as always being high or stoned. They perceive so many things and that like reducing valve hasn't been developed yet. And they don't kind of have a sense of self or sense of being embarrassed for doing something silly. Um, so they're kind of in a way more free and their thought. As we get older and default mode network takes over, everything we analyze gets framed within the sense of self. It's like exhibits this top-down control. So there are good things about the default mode network. It allows us to be self-reflective, which can be an important tool for learning. But sometimes that ego or um, sense of self can actually speak negatively to us. And this perhaps is where the source of low self-regard comes from, which is a really hard problem to fix. You know, some psychiatrists believe it's the main cause of depression is that negative self-talk and low self-regard. Um, Dr. Carha Harris proposes that psychological disorders are actually the result of too much order within the brain as a sense of self becomes overbearing and the default mode network traps us within quote, repetitive and destructive loops of rumination that eventually close us off from the world outside, unquote. Uh, the psychedelic experience as a whole may also facilitate what's called neuroplasticity or um, brain remodeling by creating a window of time or experience where thought and behavior become more plastic and easier to change. This is just a single theory, but it seems that increasing randomness or entropy within the brain and shaking things up may disrupt unhealthy patterns of thought or obsessions and create new spaces for creative thinking that even continue after a psychedelic trip is over. So now that we introduced psilocybin a bit, um, let's talk about it. What are psilocybin mushrooms and where are they grown? Yeah, so psilocybin um, is chemically known as 4-phosphoroxyl-NN-dimethyltryptamine. It's an indole-based secondary metabolite produced by numerous species of mushrooms. Uh, Psilocybe is a genus of guild mushrooms growing worldwide in the family 
Hymenogastraceae. Don't ask me to say that again. Uh, most or nearly all species contain the psychedelic compounds psilocybin and psilocin. Let me talk a little bit about how mushrooms are harvested and cultivated. So although they grow all around the world, uh, many avid mushroom hunters often claim finding a majority of their magic mushrooms in ideal growth conditions, such as in cow pastures growing on top of cow pies. Once they are picked, they are typically set out to dry. This is a very diverse species. It is estimated that there are 144 species of psilocybes or psilocybin producing mushrooms. There are even some non-psilocybes that produce psilocybin, and these mushrooms are found all over the world. These are all, of course, uh, saprophytes, as they grow best around dead or decaying wood in forested regions. They don't necessarily require warm climates to grow, as they are found in the Pacific Northwest and in higher mountain climates of Central and South America. Uh, they generally have a cone-shaped cap or a fruiting body that is brown or black or red in color, and the fleshy underside generally bruises blue or purple when they are roughed up, um, and the blue color serves as kind of a marker um, that it has oxidized psilocybin um, in the mushroom. Personally, I only consider myself a pretty amateur mushroom hunter, but it's important to know, despite the fact that these mushrooms are sort of ubiquitous and ubiquitous in nature and they are easy to misidentify and uh, the consequences of that can be fatal. So go with an expert if you're looking for these mushrooms uh, so you can make an informed decision where you consume them. Yeah. Some people will go the cultivation route uh, instead of gathering mushrooms. The benefits of cultivation are that the quality of the product can be ensured and there is less wasted time on researching and gathering wild mushrooms. Most people will start by purchasing a sterile growth medium online, uh, such as uh, you know, various mushroom grow kits, and uh, they'll also purchase a separate spore syringe uh, containing the desired genus and species of mushroom. Uh, the spores are then injected into the substrate growth media and stored in optimal growth conditions, uh, in particular a sterile, dark, room temperature, and humid environment. And then after several weeks, the mushroom will start to grow. Uh, the biggest risk to cultivators is losing their mushrooms to contamination uh, from lack of sterility practices. The dry weight of the mushroom is typically uh, what is used to dose individuals. Uh, after being dried and weighed out, they often enter the black market where they are usually consumed as a dry powder or tea. And uh, a popular way to consume them uh, today is through purchasing mushroom-infused chocolates delivered discreetly to your home. I'll mention some of the early history of uh, psilocybin mushroom use. So uh, South American Aztec Indians uh, referred to them as Tionanacal, uh, meaning God's flesh, um, and they were used in religious and healing rituals. In 1502, after the Spanish conquest of the Americas, uh, the use of hallucinogenic plants and mushrooms 
was forcibly suppressed and driven underground. By the, by the 20th century, hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, the use was thought uh, by non-Native Americans to have disappeared entirely. However, in 1955, uh, Valentina Wasson and uh, Gordon Wasson became the first Westerners to actively participate in an indigenous mushroom ceremony. The Wassons did much to publicize their discovery, and they even published an article um, of their experiences in Life magazine in 1957. In 1956, uh, Roger Heim identified the hallucinogenic mushroom that the Wassons had brought back from Mexico as psilocybe, and in 1958, Albert Hoffman first reported psilocin and psilocybin as the active compound in these mushrooms. The popularization of entheogens by Wasson, Timothy Leary, and others has led to an explosion in the use of hallucinogenic psilocybe throughout the world. Uh, by the early 1970s, a number of psychoactive psilocybin species were described from temperate North America, Europe, and Asia, and were widely collected. Uh, books describing methods of cultivating uh, psilocybin cubensis in large quantities were also published. And the relatively easy availability of hallucinogenic psilocybin from mild and cultivated, I'm sorry, from wild and cultivated sources has made it among the most widely used of the hallucinogenic drugs. So, Chris, uh, what survival adaptation does psilocybin serve for the mushrooms? Why does a mushroom produce psilocybin at all? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that, but um, it seems like altering the minds of insects uh, make psilocybes less likely to be eaten. Um, there is also some research that psilocin might suppress insect appetite. Um, it could also be that its synergistic interactions with humans have been beneficial to the mushroom species survival. And the quote, stoned ape theory hypothesizes that human interactions with mushrooms uh, help to bring about the human evolution from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. And humans brought mushrooms along with them wherever they went. Um, there are more species now in urban areas, for example. So it seems like there's you know, some domestication of the mushrooms that kind of ensure its survival as long as they you know, have that positive uh, interaction with humans. Yeah. So that's just a theory. Uh, we still don't know exactly you know, why the mushroom produces psilocybin, but those are some ideas. Um, Colby, can you tell us what the difference between psilocybin and psilocin is? Yeah, so psilocybin is a tryptamine, which is actually very similar in structure to serotonin. As Chris mentioned, it was isolated by Albert Hoffman, who, as recall, was the same person who discovered LSD. He synthesized psilocybin in 1958 from psilocybin mexicana, mexicana mushrooms. Psilocybin is rapidly metabolized in the human body to psilocin through dephosphorylation, a reaction. Psilocin has high affinity for the serotonin 2A receptor, which seems to be linked to its psychedelic effects. 
and it has lower affinity to the serotonin 1A receptor, but it does bind there as well. The psychedelic effects start within about 20 minutes of ingestion and last about six hours, with effects peaking three to four hours after ingestion. Experiences are highly variable, of course, based on set and setting, much like other psychedelics. And there might be a difference based on method of ingestion. That's something that's kind of interested in, but it's not a lot of research in that. It's one thing seems that psilocybin now occurs in chocolate and candies and gummies that the peak effect might occur a little bit faster with the sugar in the mushroom products than it does with the natural mushroom product because the cell wall and the chitin and cellulose of the mushroom is broken down real slowly by the GI tract, but sugars are rapidly metabolized. So anything that's coated in sugar is going to be a little faster to be absorbed and has a more intense peak potentially. Um, that was really just a, a teaser for psilocybin for this week. We covered a lot of various topics, I know, uh, but it was a bit of smorgasbord, but there's going to be a lot more we'll cover on psilocybin next time. That seems to be the psychedelic that's being researched the most. Uh, I don't know, would you agree, Chris? Seems like there's a lot of research on it. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, compared to all the other psychedelics, psilocybin is probably 90% of all psychedelics. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, share with a friend or post a question below if you have any. And check out our references section. And, of course, subscribe for the latest updates. For disclaimer, this program is presented for informational and educational purposes only in regards to the safety, efficacy, and drug interactions with the associated products. As medical professionals, we do not advocate for the use of substances considered federally legal according to the Drug Enforcement Administration, nor do we take responsibility for any legal adverse consequences that may come from the use of these products. All right, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.